0: This is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP, Santa Cruz, and KBDH San Ardo. Coming up next, the Agony Column. Stay tuned. Good evening and welcome to the Agony Column. My guest tonight is Colson Whitehead. His new book is Sag Harbor. Thank you for joining me, Colson.
1: Thanks for having me again.
0: Uh, Colson, I'd like to have you read from the beginning of your book there.
1: Sure. Um, It's a letter I wrote to um, early readers readers of the book, booksellers, uh, journalists, people in the know, and it says a message from the author, Dear reader." I've always been a bit of a plotter, which is why I now present my autobiographical fourth novel as opposed to the standard autobiographical first novel. I recommend this approach to others. This country was built on innovation after all, and just because things have been done a certain way for a long time, there's no reason we have to keep doing them that, doing them that way. The people are made up, but the streets and the houses are real. My old haunts are in here, and maybe some of yours are too. With a bit of luck, you'll recognize some of the places that Benji travels. At any rate, this was a different book for me to write, and I'm proud of how it turned out. I hope you enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed enjoyed writing it.
0: Thank you, Coulson. That's a a really great introduction to this book. Now, tell us a little bit about Sag Harbor. this where it, Where is Sag Harbor and describe it to those of us who live on the left coast and have no concept of what the east coast is like. Sure.
1: Sag Harbor is a, a small town on Long Island. It's in the Hamptons, which you uh, perhaps have heard of, and it got its start as a, a whaling town um, in the 18-somethings. And uh, the Af- African-American and Native American sailors uh, lived in a neighborhood called Eastville in Sag Harbor, and then their descendants. Moved to New York, and as I got older, um, sort of news spread of this small sort of pocket of land in Sag Harbor, and in the 30s and 40s, um, African-American doctors, lawyers, bankers from New Jersey, Brooklyn, Manhattan, started going out there, um, and then they'd bring friends out, and their friends would stay, and so this, you know, this, this community spread by word of mouth, and um, my mom went there when she was growing up, and I spent every
0: summer there until college. Well, this is a really fascinating uh, novel, and one of the things that interests me is the way you evoke the place. Could you talk about creating uh, the place of Sag Harbor as a character in the novel?
1: Um, Is it a character? Um, I feel like my like nineteen eighty five is more of a character than Sag Harbor. <laughs> um I, I you know, I, I I set the stage and give the history a little more detail than what I just did. And then um sort of you know, let the kids have their way. Um but the thing I, I was mostly mostly concerned about being truth truthful about recreating was that sort of early eighties uh vortex of culture between members only jackets, um New Wave versus
0: early hip hop. Um uh, and and the like. Well, now your character Benji. Um, tell us a little bit about the the setup of the family and, and the main character.
1: Okay, he's 15 years old, and he gr- he's grown up. Gr- he lives in New York City, but goes out to Sag Harbor in the summer. Uh, he's a, a younger brother named Reggie, and they're only a year apart. And so they basically come as a match set. Although puberty has now uh, divided them, and they're going their separate ways. So part of that is part of the story is. Um, describing how these two boys go off in different directions, um, he's one of the few black kids at a predominantly white private school. Um, and when he goes out to Seg Harbor and hangs out with his black friends uh, that he's grown up with, he catches up with he catches up on all the slang, dancing. And black culture, he's missed out on by being in the school. He's a bit of a dork, um, so he's sort of doubly cursed because he has not only does he not know what's going on, but he's too incompetent to actually master what he sees around him.
0: <laughs> uh, humor is one of the the main thrust to this book. It's really, really funny. But it's also, I think, really an interesting examination uh, of race consciousness and relations from within, from a perspective that I don't think we've ever seen before.
1: I don't know. But I, 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 when, when, when I think of people who've done it, I think of people like Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy or um, Dave Chappelle. I think um, definitely Eddie Murphy's first two records were big. Um, uh, big players in the in, in the summers eighty four eighty five eighty six and we all walked around reciting his uh, his his routines so i mean I, I think there are you know and also you could point to Ishmael Reed and Paul Beatty and other people who have um, uh, a sort of absurdist streak in in, in, in their work um, but when I think about certain bits in the book like the there 's an insult chart where I do like sentence diagrams for um, the way the kids curse and cuss at each other, I was thinking of. Richard Pryor and I think also George Carlin. You know, people who I grew up uh, watching on TV. I came from a very big TV watching family, and so I watched all those Richard Pryor and Carlin specials early on. And I think part of their um, appeal to me was there was the way they used humor to um, uh, blow up the world up to uh, blow the world world up to absurd proportions in a kind of truth telling. So the way that they approached the world world. Um, in their sort of comic manipulations is actually a way of being highly realistic, if that makes sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah, now, I'd like to have you read a a portion from the book here. Um, I think it's page 56, is it? Yeah, 56. Um, uh, Read this portion here starting with Marcus, and and this will give you an idea of what you're on about. Um,
1: They're at the beach, and Marcus, who's sort of like the goat of their group, the guy who always gets, uh, uh, harassed, put upon, made fun of, um, is coming, is, uh, coming to meet them on the beach. Marcus hot footed it over the black sand. He'd made good time, but then he was putting in a lot of time biking to and from work. Marcus had only been out in Sag Harbor for a week, and he was al- already on his second job. Every summer he went through a dozen easy... He got his foot in the door no problem, spinning his dismissal, f- dismissal from his last job to his new bosses the same way he spun them to, the, to us. The day manager was out to get me, he'd tell us, or I had a personality conflict with the cook. The owner was all coked out, he explained, pointing toward the realities of the mid-80s resort town restaurant business. Most of those people were coked out, basic fact. If we knew, he, if we knew for a fact that he got the axe for stealing booze... Not a bottle or two, but a whole crate. He trumped us with, those are some straight-up racist, man, which always worked, in any sphere. Who among us could refute such a judgment? It was like saying, it's hot during a heat wave. No
0: dispute. I I love the way that this book gets at the perception of race from within the perception uh, of people who are kind of a second generation, and, and you do a great job of, of evoking the parents in this book. I, I love uh, his parents because we get a kind of a, in some ways, they're almost like the Peanuts parents. <laughs> they're, they're almost not there most of the time. and um, But when they are there, you do a great job of uh, showing and not telling us uh, about the the father and the mother could could you talk about doing that well yeah i mean they uh
1: the parents live at, the parents work in the city and only come out on weekends so the kids are left to their own devices monday through friday but they're you know they're sort of good kids and dorks they don't get up to too many horrible shenanigans um so the, you know there's not a, a really strong you know plot in the book there's no you know they don't find a dead body they don't like get chased by the kkk or whatever um i didn't want to sort of make you know, insert these artificial coming-of-age moments. Uh, I want to be true to the spirit of summer. Um, And so, uh, how do you create suspense? How do you create, how do you keep the the reader going? Uh, A lot of it is the voice and Benji's perspective. And then um, withholding information and then revealing it at a certain time. So we get sort of intimations that something's wrong in Benji's house. Uh, There's something wrong in his parents' marriage. Um, And I bring it in slowly. to you know, well, to delay this sort of narrative of di- discharge, but also it's um, a way of showing how Benji sees things because he is in denial about what's going on around him, and he is aware of certain wa- certain things in his life and um, not aware of others. So, um, the way that the reader becomes slowly aware of what's going on in, in his household is apparent is. is a parallel to the, way, to the way
0: Benji is slowly waking to it. Now, one of the things I like about this book is the way you get the the friends. So, I want you to talk about the friends and also the the hierarchy of peer groups. I think you do a great job. This is a universal uh, feeling, and you mix kind of universal feelings and, and feelings that are more specific to the experience and, and a kind of exotic experience, odd of the, of the you know the wealthier uh, black. Children.
1: exotic exotic to a lot of america but you know if we're
0: in it you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know it's not exotic uh, to me it's not that exotic oh. um
1: the um uh where am i gonna go with this one um could you ask the question again <laughs> Let's talk, right. uh, <laughs> the, the peer group peer group
0: hierarchies
1: sure sure i mean um tell, you tell know, us about his
0: friends and yeah there
1: there are uh you know i, I think if you get a, a bunch of kids together there's like the kid they make fun of there's a smart kid there's like Ah, uh, the alpha dog. Um, people play roles, and so I definitely had those kids uh, that I hung out with in Sag Harbor who f- fulfilled those roles. And I thought when I started, I would you know use them more directly in the book. But each time, say um, John appeared, he would do something un John like, and and the next yeah you know, when, when he appeared again two pages later, he did some more un on John un John like things. And so, while I did have real life models. I had I had I was was not really able to use them because they weren't serving the higher purpose of the book um so there's you know there's a clown and I guess my clown character is named NP which stands for nigga please uh because no matter what he does you can only say or whatever he says or does uh the only appropriate response is nigga please you know you don't believe him uh um there's the alpha dog Clive who sort of is uh put together and uh, is our example of what it is to be to be like a, a real teenage boy. Um, so um, there are types, and uh, hopefully that you know they live. I mean, I think we all in our lives have these fr- friends who are like this who we hung out with. So even though the story is particular to the '80s and this African American neighborhood in the Hamptons, um, you know, I really am trying to uh, attack these
0: um, universal moments in teenage years and, and um one of the you have many really fascinating uh boy moments in here I I love this and of course there's the BB gun moment I, and I have to say I had a, with with the sparrow hitting the bird talk about the 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 BB gun moment
1: well I mean um Having just said like I didn't really use stuff in my life, I, I did actually have a BB gun fight at twilight, and it was too stupid not to put in the book. Um, <laughs> although it didn't go out, go down exactly the way um, it goes down the book. I think it, it was interesting the way that we pretended uh, to be gangsters when we had these BB guns. You know, we were grew up in very comfortable middle class households. Um, yet, you know, there was this nagging feeling of of not being authentic. Are, we're not black enough because we're not from the street, you know, this idea of the street, capital T, capital S, uh, that we walk around with. Um, so, uh, playing with the guns was a way of play-acting at being, you know, kind of gangsterish. And part of the reason I picked 85 was because, um, well, you know, the kids love pop culture and it's a way of, you know, it's an important way of how they interact with the world. And so I wanted to use songs and movies in a way to talk about sort of larger, broader themes so, 80, so, in '85, hip hop is moving away from its corny stage, where you had brand, bands like U.T.F.O. and Houdini, who wore like leather jumpsuits and like had different characters like the Village People, um, and moving towards what it became in the late '80s—you know, commercial, very highly commercialized and gangsterized—and it was all sort of grown up. And so, the boys in the book are boys becoming men, um, uh, stumbling towards adulthood, and the music is also in that same sort of position. So um, uh, the way that, you know, gangsta, you know, the way that gangster rappers, you know, some people like Ice Cube who was sort of playing a role in, um, in, a, in a, his, 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 his music is sort of a counterpart to the way these boys are playing a role. It is a mask. And for some of them, they don't stop acting out. And this has consequences later on in, in their lives.
0: Now, I'd like you to read another section here. Surely. This is from page 87. And this gets to some of the street attitude and also the way uh, the father, the perceptions of the father, which I think it's very funny, but also... uh, very interesting, too. Uh, and should I go with the watermelon stuff, too? Oh, yeah. Let's hear Oh, th- Now, this is a hysterical piece. <laughs> I love this piece. So tell us about that. Yeah.
1: Okay, so, you know, each, um, you know, the, the boys have the different different ways of a sort of approaching or performing what they think blackness is. Um, so um, Benji has a friend. Um... Named Nick and Nick is living at Sag Harbor full-time now because you know, his parents are getting divorced and it's just sort of cheaper And so he's been he's become like a townie, which is like uh, You know very shameful so to overcompensate he um, Throws himself into the b-boy attire of the day uh, and Here we are talking about his gold chain and what it's like to walk around in the in mostly white Sag Harbor um, When you're on display my father would have kicked me out of the house if I walked around with a gold chain around my neck. Not that it ever would have occurred to me to get a gold chain. Who does he think he is, I can hear my father say. Where does he think he comes from, this street? The street in my father's mind was a vast, abstract plane of black pathology. He'd grown up poor, fighting his way home every day off Lennox Avenue, and any hint that he hadn't escaped, that all his suffering had been for naught, Kindled his temper and his deep fear that aspiration was an illusion, and the street a labyrinth without exit, a mess of connecting alleys and avenues always leading back into itself. So, no. No gold chains, no. The stereotype stuff was hard, no joke, no matter where you came from. Look, we had all kinds in Sag Harbor. We had diehard bougies, we had first-generation college strivers, fake wasps, the odd, mellowing militant. But no matter where you fell in the spectrum of righteousness, down with the cause or up with the man, there were certain things you did not do. Too many people watching. You didn't, for example, walk down Main Street with a watermelon under your arm. Even if you had a pretty good reason, like you were going to a potluck and each person had to bring an item and your item just happened to be a watermelon, luck of the draw. And you wrote this on a sign so everyone would understand the context. And as you walked down Main Street, you held a sign in one hand and explained watermelon in the other, all casual, perhaps nodding between the watermelon and the sign for extra emphasis if you made eye contact. This would not happen. We were on display. You'd add cover purchases, as if you're buying hemorrhoid cream or something, throw some apples into the basket, a carton of milk, butter, some freakin' saltines, and all smiles at the register. But for argument's sake, let's say there was a brand of character who was able to say, forget that, I'm gonna walk up and down Main Street with a watermelon under each arm, and one between my legs, big grin on my face, peak a rush hour such such rebellion was inherently self-conscious overly determined it doth protect, protest too much described an inner conflict as big as that of the watermelon avoiders we were all stuck whether we wanted to admit it or not we were people not performance artists all appearances to the contrary
0: that's colson whitehead reading from his latest book sag harbor Colson, <laughs> this book is w- really very funny and, and I think also a little bit uncomfortable for, for some readers. I, I I was laughing really hard, but also a little bit witchy, too. Could you talk about evoking that in the, in the reader? Well, you know,
1: I mean, I, I think, it, you know, it's a way of um, uh, changing up the experience. I mean, I, 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 I think if you juxtapose humor and then some sort of horrible moments with a parent or a peer, and you go back into humor, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of knocking the reader around and keeping them off balance, um, the way we so often are when we're walking around uh, through our lives. And so, I've always been attracted, like I said, I was always attracted to people like Richard Pryor and George Carlin, and then later on, you know, people like Beckett or Pynchon, people who have like, you know, very finely tuned, sensitive humor, but also, uh, um, an understanding of the tragic, and um, weave both weave them both together expertly.
0: Now, one of the, the one of the things I love is is that the some of the expectations of what Benji the, at the beginning of the book when he's talking about what he's expected to know, uh, and I love his his take on the famous black people he's supposed to have known.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you know, like many people who sort of clueless over. Uh, about uh, his culture's traditions, and so he hears people talking about Du Bois and um, Marcus Garvey, but never, never actually no one's ever, never actually told him who they actually are. I mean, um, whatever page on the Black History calendar he had, uh, you know, he, he skipped that month. And so um, you know, I'm talking about a, a, a kid who's trying to figure out uh, who he is and where he's going. And so at, at the beginning of the summer, he has his, this dream of transforming himself. Uh, he wants to be go he wants to go by Ben instead of Benji. Benji is like a kid's name, and he's these different co- dreams of of uh, reinvention, which of course uh, come mostly to naught. I mean, I think the experience of summer is that uh, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, you're only point zero zero one percent sort of smarter or wiser than you were at the beginning. Uh, we move as human beings um, toward enlightenment. Uh, by, by taking very, very small steps. And so the artificial coming-of-age book moment where the narrator or protagonist is suddenly transformed by this uh, or tested by some huge event doesn't exist here. He's tested by, um, you know, the small sort of mundane moments, the quotidian, getting his first minimum wage job and um, watching his friends get the 10-cent raises while he gets the 5-cent raises. Uh, first kiss, and... Um, uh, trying to um, uh, talk his way into a club and that, that you know that's sort of you know it's not that big but it's a sort of a, you know the, the caper chapter uh the, the big caper of chapter six and so these small events that you know define a, a teenage summer or teenage hopes and dreams I found more compelling and and more challenging to work with than say um, someone gets lynched or like you know the there's a big fire you know the, all that kind of made up stuff
0: that's one of the things I loved about this novel. was it's, its focus on, on the, the real because it seems it makes it all that more affecting. And one of the things you do very well is you give us little hints of stuff uh, of the the man who, who's writing this book, and not too much, but just a little bit. And, and I'm wondering how you made those decisions as to what to tell us and, and why.
1: Well, yeah, there's certain things I can do as a writer and certain things I don't want to do and, you know, I have to f- figure out stuff that's challenging um, and will be interesting. So I, I really had no interest in doing uh, a, having a 15-year-old narrator, like just keeping in character. You always have to, always have to keep in character, but I didn't want to have to use a 15-year-old's you know vocabulary and perceptions, you know, solely. People get around that when they have teenage or, you know, 12-year-old, narrators who are sort of hyper literate they're prodigies and that's sort of like a cheat but you know, you, you, you know if you pull it off it's fine but I didn't want to have the, you know, have yet another like super brainy 15 year old who's wise behind his years and wise beyond, beyond his years and has a sort of elevated vocabulary. So I wanted, I wanted um, the narrator to be the adult looking back upon his adolescence and ordering it. I, want that, I wanted him to have some mastery of his experiences and um, some perspective. So, um, I think, you know, a lot of my books, my narrators, uh, zoom in for super close-ups and, um, uh, sort of really, sort of dig into, you know, sort of mundane or esoteric subjects. And, um, you know, this narrator does it, but, but yeah, but this time it's the more sort of small moments of adolescence. Um, and, and so it's, it's a similar method to some, you know, some of the things I've done before, but, um, what he's chewing over the critic the critic narrator what, what the critic narrator is looking at is different sort of stuff well there's
0: a wonderful and, a, and as I, you mentioned melville a couple times in this book because this is where melville uh wrote wrote about uh wrote about uh, this part in uh moby dick yeah he passed you know he, pa- you know he did pass through town
1: and moby dick is mentioned uh early on in uh in moby dick so that was nice sort of
0: well, well, there's a in there. there's a great kind of almost Melvillian um, explana- exploration of the ice cream store where Benji works, where there's a, where where when there's a power outage. Could you talk about creating that? You, you you use this, you do this quite a bit in this book, where you'll take uh, somewhat mundane moments of adolescence and um, look at them through a very uh, Academic kind of uh, point perception that, and it's you do two things. You get really get us into and uh, a deep understanding of how the adolescent mind works. Yet it's also a very funny parody of, of academic thought as well. Well, I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, the voice of the narrator, um, you know, turned out to be a very sort of uh, um, it. Uh, was what I was trying to say. It became a, a very sort of useful choice and ended up having a lot of different registers and so that was a lot of fun. And um, he is, has a, he has a very sort of, uh, he's a comedian's way of looking at the world and so there's a, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for humor. Um, in terms of the section that we're talking about, you know, I am drawing from my own experiences but I'm not actually uh, that interesting a person. And so I have to uh, really sort of embellish things that happened to me um, uh, in order to make them work in a book, so I did work in an ice cream store for three summers, and um, and that's where I get the lingo and the smell and the sort of atmosphere down. But I um, I didn't have like a racist a, race, a racial incident with my boss and then try to sabotage his business as, as happens in <laughs> in the book. So um, well you know so without adding these sort of these heavy melodramatic moments, I, I do sort of you know. Um, something has to happen to Benji, and so the task is how to narrate these much smaller stakes encounters, so that they have this sort of um,
0: uh, heavier import. You have, yeah, you you manage to give uh, lots of the the smaller points of adolescence an almost mythic feel, and make fun too of the. Perceptions of adolescents who always feel like you're engaged in the greatest struggle of all time You're the final boy who's going to do the greatest thing in the world if only you can get out of your job or something
1: Well, I mean, you know, you know, I think it's a time we definitely when I started becoming becoming more aware of like my individuality and my sort of failures to uh, Enter into a larger community of teenagers or just you know the world in general, you know, you know, was definitely my early high school years were a time where um, I was discovering my otherness uh, to many different groups, uh, to white kids, other black kids, and I think that's you know one of those sort of rights, one, one of the uh, you know key points of adolescence. This sort of uh, figuring out where you where you fit into places, where you fit into things, and
0: failing to fit, and then trying again, and maybe you'll, you know, you'll fail you better next time. Now, one of the uh, themes of this book are, are things that, that I found really interesting was that Benji's kind of a geek. He's definitely a geek, not kind of a geek. He's definitely a geek, and I, I love that he's interested in. Uh, um, he's a D and D player. Uh, he's a Fangoria reader. Talk about the the effect of that on his social life.
1: Well, I mean, I, I think I definitely had to figure out. You know, I learned. Not to mention certain enthusiasms of, of mine, <laughs> um, you know, um, when I entered high school. And I think we all sort of figured out, like, we're all trying, you know, in that time, figure out, like, what is the cool thing to say? What's the cool thing to wear? Like, oh, that's out? Uh, why didn't somebody send me a memo? And so, um, we we're all, to different degrees, behind on the latest edicts and literature of how we're supposed to be teenagers. But Benji's especially behind, you know, the mailman definitely passes over, passes his door uh, fairly often. So he is, I mean, uh, he's very observant and he's trying to figure out from others' behavior how he should behave. But he also knows that he doesn't want, you know, to do whatever everyone else does. And so it gets him into trouble. Um, He's learning to leave behind his sort of nerdy enthusiasms. But, you know, at heart he's, you know, he loves these things. So he has to figure figure out how to let them go.
0: Now you you talked about the 1985 being a, a character in the in the book and and you, you're right it really is and you you bring a, a lot of the the famous events and new Coke talk about the I was impact. so
1: lucky when I you know, I was like what else happened in, in <laughs> high school and I was so uh, happy that uh, the unveiling of new Coke um, happened in 85 um, I was a big. Uh, coke drinker, and I was personally crushed when um, uh, they got rid of the original formula and brought out a new Coke for briefly. So, in my um, uh, attempts to make this into a, a mythic battle or, or you know, a sort of mythic conflict, uh, Benji is one of those um, Coke hoarders. Hoarders, you might have heard about, you know, in the summer of '85, who went around making getting a secret stash of the old formula. Um, and so there's a caper where he tries to steal some, he's, you know, someone else has a stash, and he tries to steal some coke. Uh, and, um, you know, while I am trying to you know, have a, make a sort of um, brief comic aside, it does sort of speak to, his, describe his sort of um, completely clueless ideas about what it is to be a, a person.
0: We'll get back to my interview with Colson Whitehead in a moment. You know, it's a man that brought you sex and drugs and rock and roll. Will you kindly welcome Ian Dury and the Blockheads? Come on, Is us have some noise! Support for All Things Considered is from Dominican Hospital, the Central Coast Certified Stroke Center Program. Comprehensive, coordinated, round-the-clock care makes the difference in a medical emergency. Details at dominicanhospital.org or at 831-462-7200. Tune in to Talk of the Bay this evening at 7 p.m. Host, guest host Brian Peterson talks to California Reports' John Myers and former Assemblymember and Budget Chair John Laird about California's special ballot propositions coming up for election on May 19th. That's Talk of the Bay this evening at 7 p.m. on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. Support for the Agony Column is by Capitola Book Cafe. Artistic director Marco Baricelli will give an overview of Shakespeare Santa Cruz 2009 summer season, 7.30 p.m., May 18th at Capitola Book Cafe. Details are available at 462-4415. Family Night is offered by the Monterey Recreation and Community Services Department on Monday through Thursday evenings from 5 to 8.45 p.m. at four different community centers. Family Night is a free drop-in program for local teens and their families featuring billiards, ping-pong, foosball, video games, and computer games. For program locations, call 646-6556. And support for the Agony Column is by the Writer's Journey Workshop in Santa Cruz, offering weekly classes to help writers awaken creativity and discover a writer's voice. Seven-time author Laura Davis welcomes writers of all levels. Information on summer classes at lauradavis.net. get back to my conversation with Coulson Whitehead. Coulson? Well, there's
1: one thing. Uh, so we're in your studio, and I was hoping there would actually be a literal, a, a literal agony column in your, stu- in your studio, <laughs> but I don't, I don't see it anywhere.
0: Well, <laughs> actually, uh, I generally explain that the, the origin of the name is from uh, the pages where Sherlock Holmes... Uh, in the Victorian broadsheets where he found both his clues and his clients. It's the uh, the personals column, essentially, from the then. But no, uh, uh, I suppose I'm the only column of agony. Sure, <laughs> but, you know. And we have the uh, towering uh, uh, camera column, too. Um, Colson, one of the things that I think is really great about this book, uh, and I wanted to get back to some of these things, are, are some of the, this your academic... Uh, the the things you do, like where you make lists, uh, you have like the six kinds of silence in um, uh, Benji's house. Could you talk about those kind of various lists you do? You do a, that a lot, and it's really fun.
1: Well, uh, you know, I was trying to, you know, in each chapter, I'm trying to find, figure out what which, what piece of pop culture can be useful to talk about uh, where Benji's coming from. And so um, you know, I spent many a uh, summer afternoon reading The, the Book of Lists. Uh, the bestseller from I think the seventy six seventy seven, and um, uh, in in our in our Sag Harbor place we had you know a very limited number of books. It was just sort of whatever um, got trapped in the house and stayed. And so there wasn't no, there wasn't a sort of a lot of stuff, a lot of new stuff coming in. So the book of lists was always there, and you always like read it a hundred times. And some of it was naughty, like you know top six sexual positions. Some of it was weird, like. Eight cases of spontaneous combustion. You know, I, I believe I believed in spontaneous combustion because, and I, I believe in a lot of things because of the Book of Lists. And so, um, do you still believe in spontaneous human combustion? Um, well, yeah. I mean, I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, I haven't thought about it. I mean, anything is possible. I think I'm. I'm moving more. I was a skeptic for a while. Now I'm moving to a more sort of generous view that the world is strange and who knows what happens in it. Um, in my old age. So, um, so part of. Benji's ordering of his world is breaking up, sort of his family dysfunction into the book of lists. So there's six types of uh, silences in Benji's house, uh, six kinds of fake smiles,
0: and he breaks it down, sort of, you know, smile, smile by smile. Now, uh, this book is obviously, and you've said it, this is an autobiographical novel. Um, could you talk about a why did you why didn't you just write an autobiography? I mean, biographies are all really hot sellers now. Well, yeah, I mean,
1: if something you know, if something of interest happens to me, I'll definitely monetize it in a memoir. <laughs> I'm still waiting, you know. If I was if my plane went down the mountains, I mean, to eat each other, you know, I definitely would uh, dig in. And when I'm rescued, I would go to my publisher first thing and hand in my uh, manuscript. You know, day two, ran out of food. And, we ate, John. So, um, so I'm still waiting for my memoir moment. However, just walking around Sag Harbor in the summer of '85 is interesting, and I have to, you know, um, figure out how to make Benji interesting enough
0: that it's it's a it's, uh, readable and worth your while. Now, um, when you were creating the, creating a Benji, did you um? Did you create him before you wrote the book, in a sense? I mean,
1: well, I, I do. You know, a lot of prep work, and so I was thinking of the book on and off for three years before I, you know, started writing it. So by the time, uh, I, you know, I had his voice, you know, he started talking. Um, it's a first-person narrator. You know, I knew who he was and what had to happen, and you know, the sort of hoops I'd set up for him. So um, in terms of his, you know, literal voice, the, the words he uses and the way he speaks um... you know it takes like a bunch of pages to get down so uh... thirty forty pages you know, you try these kind of sentences you try those kind of sentences um... this kind of perspective this kind of level of knowledge and you figure out what works for him and what you're trying to um... what's going to work for the book
0: now um... uh... I, I wonder if you could talk about too um... just some of your your writing process because it's it, this book is really finely written Um, do you, uh, how, how do you go about writing a book like this? Well, this, um, I had a lot of, you know, I mean, from the
1: idea to, uh, execution was longer than usual. Uh, I have a four and a half year old daughter and, uh, when she started, was able to walk, I (laughs) stopped getting work done. So, so, you know, it was very productive. And then, you know, she burst into my office, dad saying daddy. And that was like it for a year and a half. And so I was taking notes, like sort of on and off, you know, for many months um, but generally when I start writing, I'm, 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 I'm very much on, and so my sort of uh, vestigial nerd thing is keeping a track of how many pages I write each day, and once I figure out like, how many pages I'm doing a week, that becomes like my sort of standard that I'd like to keep to. So, this was like an eight-page-a-week book, and if I did six pages one week, I had to do ten the next week, and if I do four on Monday... You know, that means and if I take a couple days off, I have to catch up on Saturday and Sunday, so I make my quota. So, um, you know, people have different ways of, of doing, doing things. Uh, that works for me. I think if I, if I know wh- how m- what I'm supposed to get done each week, um, I find it very useful. And then sometimes, you know, you take a month off and you're sort of beating yourself up. Uh, in, in, in between chapters, you know, I took time off. But generally when I'm going, um, you know, that's the only thing I'm doing.
0: Now, um, this also uh, involves. Uh, you said you know a lot, a lot of these people that you, the your characters are that you've created are, are based on your friends, the people you knew. Could you talk about you know uh, how did you feel? Didn't you feel kind of weird doing that? Well,
1: they're not. I mean, they're not really. You know, I think the idea when I started was, oh, here's you know John, John, and I'm like I'll use him, but they weren't actually as useful as I wanted them to be. So, and then talking, you know, it just came out and I haven't talked to, the book just came out and I haven't talked to uh, my friends from back then. But it's <laughs> shown to, to my family, my brother, and my brother's like, oh, is that supposed to be so-and-so? And I'd be like, no. And my brother was there. So, um, yeah, the characters, you know, the, the main, I wasn't trying, I didn't have to, I had to be true to the time, and I wanted to be true to the culture of Sag Harbor. But I didn't, I felt no need to be true to, um, uh, my friends and the interactions I had. You know, the fun part of working is making stuff up. And if I could have used, if John John was useful, I definitely would have used him. But frankly, you know, he didn't do what I needed him to do. Like most people, you know, know, the people I knew
0: didn't do what I wanted them to. That's always a problem, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Now, but one thing that did do what you needed to do, what was the culture of, of the 1985. and one of the things you talk about, I think that's very interesting is uh, the Cosby Show. Tell us a little bit about how the Cosby show plays into the novel and maybe how it played into your life too. yeah,
1: I, mean, I, I you know personally was not you know a big fan of you know it was all right, but I wasn't that into sitcoms when it came out. Uh, but you know people you know, families I knew, my friends' families were sort semi-obsessed with it because there was this sort of upper, upper middle class black family on TV for the first time. You know, we'd, I grew up on good times and what's happening and the sort of Norman Lear idea of you know, how black people live. Uh, and we all watched these shows because we had no choice because you know, we had to watch, we wanted to see ourselves but it wasn't exactly the way we were living. So people latched onto the Cosby show as this, um, you know, finally you know, they're showing the way we live. You know, um, but like any sort of TV show, it's you know it's fantasy, and so um, I talked about using pop culture to talk about sort of larger you know themes than uh, to talk about larger themes, and so I you know I, I use I think I used the Cosby Show in the way that people in the '60s used uh, the white writers, the humorists of the '60s used Leave It to Beaver or something. You know, there was this you know sitcom idea of how Americans lived, but if you actually had you know an idea in your brain, leave it to Beaver is not your existence, and if you you know, you could just you could look around your house and know that uh, this sort of '50s sitcom idea of how we live w- was not true, and so uh, Cosby became sort of use- useful for me because uh, on the surface you know it would seem to be have some sort of um, import or relevance, but obviously it's uh, ultimately it's a false show, and so. His fam and um, the sort of short glimpses we get of the dysfunction in in Benji's family uh, certainly give lie to the Bill Cosby uh, fantasy.
0: Uh, One of the things I think that's very interesting is the the way you uh, create tension in this book, um, without uh, in but keeping it entirely realistic. uh, Could you talk about? Using voice, using prose, using grammar—all the you bring a lot of different things in in up up to the front to to keep us reading, and it's a fascinating uh, book because it's really kind of a page turner because we really want to find out what happens. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, the the narrative engine is Benji's voice and his perspective and his experiences. Um, How do you keep it going? Well, you know, you're always just trying to. have to you know, look at what you've just written and say, why is this sentence here and not there? Um, why am I introducing this character on page 91 as opposed to page 30? Why do the parents not commit to chapter 5? And what kind of effect are you achieving by that strategic uh, revelation? So uh, there are situations uh, that have to come at a certain moment to create a certain effect. You're finding the right sentences in the right place
0: to, to create a certain effect. Um, there's a lot of time travel. I mean, uh, you, you, the chronology is really interesting in this book, the way you give us information. Did you have to create, like, some kind of uh, bizarro timeline?
1: Well, I, I mean, it. Um, I, I think of incidents that might serve Benji's character, and then where do they come? Where, where, where do they go? So there's a discussion, um, there's a sort of music nerd discussion in Chapter 2 about Africa Mbata using a sample from Kraftwerk and who, right. and who actually was stealing from whom. And so... Um, uh, you know, is is it a black person stealing from white culture, or white a white person stealing from black culture? And this sort of uh, incredibly important, but also meaningless uh, argument over who's stealing from whom. Uh, so the kids are having are having this discussion, and should it come in chapter two to sort of set up the terms of their existence? Should it sort of come up in chapter five, where there's a lot more sort of music discussion, or, or sort of chapter six, where there's more stuff about hip hop. Where do these different incidents go where, where's the proper place and you know you figure out where they should go by figuring out what kind of effect you want to achieve and where in the story we are um, so that this discussion can have its um, uh, most powerful
0: effect girls there are some in there and, and you do a really great job that's I think one of the great drivers in this book because we, we really want to see that moment and we kind of get it well, yeah, you know, it's the
1: same, the same way you know, the parents don't come in for a while. They live in a sort of boys... The boys have this sort of girl-free existence just through a, a quirk of uh, demographics. Uh, they're older... Benji's older sister was part of a group that was, you know, fairly gender-balanced, uh, but Benji is not part of a group that's gender-balanced. So the girls do come in um, uh, around Chapter 5, and... Um, Again, you're sort of withholding, you know, withholding from the reader some sort of event, and you're creating suspense and uh, an idea of what's going to happen. So the girls come in halfway through the summer and upset, you know, the careful order that they've had
0: uh, in the first four chapters. Well, it's it's an interesting uh, summer because it, it's uh, e- you get um, this two month glimpse. uh, Of Benji's life, but you also get the entirety of his life too, kind of uh, pixelated through there. Could you talk about mixing that big vision with the little vision?
1: Well, you know, he's sort of a loser loner, but he's part of a big community. So there's his grandfather, his grandparents' generation, his Mm -hmm. parents' generation, and um, he is part of this you know cycle of renewal and rebirth that is these generations come into Sag Harbor, you you know, generation after generation. So um, when he sees a kid on the beach uh, who's, you know, five or six, he's seeing his his replacement. And someone who's um, in his 40s, seeing him walk down the street is, you know, seeing Benji as their replacement. And there's this sort of passing of the torch. um, uh, A certain kind of way that there's a limited number of types of people in the world. And they're all in... Uh, your hometown uh they 're in they 're on your block and they 're in Sag harbor and if you get them all together, say for example, on labor day party uh we 're all bumping up against our future and um, past and present selves in the and we, we see them in other people 's faces
0: that 's a really fascinating uh vision and I, I I love the labor day party and, and I love the the culmination of the burning of furniture.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's always nice when, when you get to the end of the book because you've been waiting three or four years to, to uh, finally, finally write these scenes that you've been thinking about. So, like the last chapter, I, I, I wrote in a week. You know, I knew his voice; I knew it had to happen. It had been building towards it for years, and it just came out in sort of one, uh, really sort of sh- rel- relatively short burst of work um, because I had, you know. Um, one of the good things about planning and outlining before you start writing is that you know what you're writing toward. And so, when I got finally got to chapter 8, I was like, okay, let it rip and um I can finally sort of implement uh and execute all these things I've been setting up for a couple of years.
0: Now, now so you outline. Yes. Uh, that's an in, that's interesting because it, I, I mean, it doesn't it feel, the book feels very very organic. Well, I mean, um
1: uh, all, all, all my books have been outlined, and the outline changes as characters become more or less important, or you know, you think of more mm. things, and so um, God, the outline. I never would have guessed that. That's that's really
0: that's amazing.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You have to know what's, what's, what's going to happen. <laughs> I, I I think, in generally, generally, it's hard enough to find the words. So, if, but if I had to get up every morning and not know, also, what, what the words, what was going to happen. You know, I'd be paralyzed. So I know it's going to happen the next day, and I can spend my time just trying to figure out how to say it, as opposed to think up what, I, what. In addition, what it's going to be.
0: Could you talk about uh, revising your work? Do you do a lot of revision once you're done, or?
1: Um, I, I revise as, as I go along. So I never understood the whole draft system, where you know mm. I've done thirty-six drafts. I mean, I've, I've definitely done thirty-six drafts of this sentence and that paragraph, um, but not in any sort of organized way. So if i have a productive morning and I'm not going to I know i'm not going to write i'll revise what i did a week before or a year before or you know 2 months before whatever i feel like looking at whatever i've sort of avoided looking at and so yeah i mean it gets you know it all gets worked over a lot a lot a lot and i revise a lot but um, not sort of all the way through i mean at, at the end i you know when i finished a draft when i finished the manuscript i went back and you know and cut stuff but Um, it was sort of, you know, it was sort of cleaning things up. I'm not, I didn't, like, have to throw in a new character or, you know, a new
0: scene. It was, it was pretty done. I think this is a big result of the introduction of computers into, uh, um, word processing where we've got, uh, you know, it it allows us to do that kind of revise on, in the instant.
1: Yeah, I know, you know, librarians and, uh... You know folks who collect people people's papers or you know lament the lack of the <laughs> you know um, marked up draft uh, but um you well, know it, you it is, yeah I mean it is useful to just change the comma and to see what it looks like
0: well now you can have a uh, backup uh, computer backups of every version every incremental version so you could have essentially a daily snapshot if you yeah know. I
1: know I know people like want yeah I know people who buy archives, you know, want your computers now. Like, they want physical artifacts. So they can just go in and, like, find everything. Really? Um, so I have a friend who buys things for Emory, and uh, he's like, don't throw out your computers, you know? Wow. Like, you know. Keep your laptop from eight years ago. Like, don't touch it. And when you sell your papers, if people want them, <laughs> like, you know, uh, they'll send techies in and find all these different versions floating around.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. It, does that realization maybe change the way you think about writing at all? Or? Um, no, I mean, I, I keep my, um,
1: you know, when I get a review, I'll, I'll put it in my little box and that's it. I mean, you know, my friends may be aware that you should just keep everything <laughs> that's, you know, related to your writing life. But, um, you know, I'm sort of too lazy to, to do more than just have a a big plastic bin from Home Depot
0: and throw stuff in it. Now, um... You you said you took like what three and a half years to write this book or something? I think like that.
1: yeah. I mean, um, I took notes, not necessarily like heavy notes. Um, you know, it could be one sentence every two months, and then uh, <laughs> but it adds up over a couple of years. And so, I could, I thought it'd be, the book was a good idea in the summer of '04, and then I started writing uh, full time in October of '06. And I finished it, and I handed it to my editor. I finished the Thanksgiving of 07, so.
0: Now, um, could you talk about, um, you've written nonfiction and, and fiction essays, so I'm wondering how much the, the uh, non-fiction you wrote informs this fiction, because there's a, this really has a lot of a feel, as I say, a kind of an academic, it's almost like a, a document about adolescence as much as it is a, a personal vision.
1: Well, I think being a journalist, um, uh, having to sit down for five hours to get a piece in, taught me how to, you know, train me to, to write novels. You know, I have to sit all, sit all day at my computer and police myself. You know, keep my keep to my deadline, deadline, and uh, and produce. Um, and I was a critic. You know, my main, you know, I wasn't one of these guys uncovering police corruption. I was just sort of spouting off about music and, and TV and film. And definitely my, narr- my narrators have that sort of critical eye. Um, and so, um, in the watermelon section, I I read, <laughs> you know, he, you know, the narrator's being a critic about um, uh, performative blackness. Um, and, and so, and when I do sort of zoom in on these sort of small, um, mundane aspects of Benji's life, I think I am sort of being a critic in an old way. So, um, I don't know, you know, I, uh, on, on the plane today I was reading uh, Moneyball by Michael Lewis and I was thinking like how I would go about having you know if I wanted to write something that was more straight non-fiction as, uh, non-fiction and you know, my book of essays about New York City like how I would, I would go about it and I would love to have some sort of really neat sort of um, uh, corner of the world to sort of unpack and uh, and write about in a way that he, you know you um, know michael lewis found in the the oakland a's so i mean um and i was thinking about how the sense senses sentences would be different you know you have to explain more in nonfiction. you have to you know there's have to be sort of true to people's quotes and you can't make make stuff up and i was wondering if i would have fun doing it or it'd be a neat challenge and how the different uh the different way of going about it would be
0: uh, i'd like to ask you to read word, uh, on page 132 this is a uh there's kind of a long reading, but I really love it because it's, it gets in about Star Wars and, and another cultural artifact of the 80s. Okay. Um, I think it's pretty self-explanatory.
1: Um, oh, yeah. One night in fourth grade, I was playing with my Star Wars action figures when I heard my father yell, Benjamin, from the living room. I dropped Greedo immediately. I'd moved from playing the Caucasian heroes of, heroes of Star Wars, of the Star Wars universe, preferring instead the alien and armored and masked. I'd been Luke Skywalker for a long time, the bright rays of the whole great destiny thing, appealing to my overcast soul. And then Han Solo, his wise-cracking ease in the face of hardship, a kind of tutelage, a lightsaber for a blaster pistol. Then I decided that being them was tainted. I'd seen something on TV about it. One Sunday morning, my parents were watching the Black Affairs affairs show, Like It Is, when Gil Noble, the host, welcomed a psychologist who railed against Barbies and the cult of the blonde. Gray waves swept through his afro, and he wore a green and yellow daishiki, a silver-black power fist hanging on a chain around his neck. Swear to God. He described a study where a group of black children were told to pick the pretty doll, and when they passed over brown princesses, time after time, what was there to say? Why are children being taught to hate themselves? Barbie, Luke, brainwashed by the evil empire. Black was beautiful, but black didn't exist in the pre-Lando Calrissian Star Wars universe, beyond the malevolent black of Darth Vader. And what about Lando's treachery in the cloud city of Bespin, once he did appear, selling Han out? selling Han out, hitting on his lady, some role model. So in my games, I became Greedo, the green, scalloped-eared, bug-eyed nemesis of Han Solo, or rather in my mythology, another alien from Greedo's home planet of Rodeo, Greedo's cousin. Hence the family resemblance and predilection for ribbed body suits. He was a good kid on a straight and narrow, unlike his relative. Or it was a Death Star droid with human programming, not much of a stretch. Or a defecting stormtrooper, skin obscured behind the armor plates of the Empire. In my room, Greedo's cousin redeemed his people through his private war against the forces of evil. He was, quote, a credit to his
0: race, unquote. <laughs> now... <laughs> was Star Wars a, a, a big influence on your thoughts? Was that a big part of your life?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, definitely from, you know, third grade to sixth grade. You know, a huge sort of cultural influence. Um, hard to escape, hard not to be, you know, uh, um, touched by the Lucas Spielberg uh, late 70s, early 80s um, culture factory. Uh, so the point is, like, how do you take this thing that's been done to death, Star Wars, and make it uh, yours, make it work in a book. You know, find a new way of talking about these things. So, um, I, you know, Grito is definitely, I think, an overlooked, an important part of the, of the Star Wars <laughs> galaxy.
0: And this is one of the reasons we love this book so so much, because you really do have a, a great way of re, uh, just jiggering things one way to to the left, a quarter inch to the right, just to get us a really different perspective.
1: Um, yeah, you know, the book was a blast. I mean, uh, uh, I was using some of the, you know, some of the things I learned in earlier books, but I, I, the whole thing was just from start to finish a very fun book to, to write. And it's actually changed my idea of like what I should do next. I have no idea. Usually I have, you know, I'm a third of the way into a new book when I have, I have a book come out, but this book was so different that, you know, my sort of list of ideas that I'd have seems kind of old. So, or I've, I've done that before. So, um, for the first time, I have no idea what I'm doing next, and it's kind of very nice and pleasant. And I'm just going to enjoy the book,
0: having the book out, and uh, uh, think on it. I've been speaking with Colson Whitehead. His new book is *Sag Harbor*. Thank you for joining me, Colson. No, thanks a lot. We'll be back in just a moment. The Sound of Young America coming up next, uh, at 8 o'clock this evening on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. The City of Santa Cruz accepts e-waste, including computer monitors, laptops, cell phones, and televisions. Take e-waste to the Resource Recovery Facility Gatehouse at 605 DeMeo Lane, three miles north of Santa Cruz County on Highway 1, Monday through Saturday from 7.30 to 3.30 p.m. Information is available at 420-6275. Coming up next on KUSP 88.9 FM, it's Talk of the Bay.